Look, hiring is tough, right? It's very competitive right now. You got to move fast. You want to get to the best people and you don't want to waste a lot of time. But a place where growing businesses can go to connect with the most qualified candidates is ZipRecruiter. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Sexton and you'll see for yourself. You can use a free trial there. It'll connect you to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. They have a powerful matching technology that will make sure that the thousands of resumes that you get access to will be scanned through so you'll get exactly the right people with the right experience for your job search. Folks, we used ZipRecruiter here to hire people for thehill.com, and we've gotten great hires. These are now my colleagues and friends, and they came courtesy of ZipRecruiter. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest-rated hiring site in America. Try for yourself. My listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, totally free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Sexton. That's ZipRecruiter.com. Dot com slash Sexton for this exclusive offer. ZipRecruiter.com slash Sexton, the smartest way to hire. You are entering the Freedom Hut. The Democrats' extremism on immigration could be a big problem for them going into the upcoming midterm election. We'll talk about that. Plus... President Trump has announced Space Force. Very exciting stuff we will discuss. And a deep dive into just how deep Senator Dianne Feinstein's ties to China go. Here's a hint. It's not just that spy that we need to worry about. There's a whole lot more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to The Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here with me. Excited to be able to address you, as always, from the swamp. Is swamptastic here. It's that kind of swampiness where you walk outside and you feel like you're swimming, and then you realize you're just swimming in yourself because it's so sweaty and so gross. And you'd like to think that maybe you're gliding through the air, but no, you're actually just a glistening, greasy mess walking around the streets of swampy D.C., uh, surrounded by lobbyists and, and creatures of the government. It's a terrifying thing. I, at least I get to come in here. This, this, is, uh, this is my happy place. I think I, we can't call it a safe space because that would be snowflake-like. No, producer Mike is given thumbs down. This is my happy place, the Freedom Hut, my friends. So let's, uh, let's discuss what we're going to be hitting today on the show. Uh, well, actually, I'll just get right into it. Immigration is a topic that you'll notice Democrats don't really have a specific policy that they want to push. It's much more a question of posturing. It's it's a way of achieving cheap virtue, a virtue signaling without having any uh, challenges to to overcome, without any without any skin in the game, without making any tough choices. You just get to say, you know, America is a nation of immigrants. Look at the poem on the bottom of the Statue of Liberty. And you're like, well, that's not that's not enough. And you might start to say things like, have you ever considered random pajama boy liberal uh, that a lot of other countries have immigration policies that you would inherently consider to be perhaps racist or xenophobic because they, meaning other countries, pretty much every other country on the planet, at least every other country that anybody wants to go to, 
they take the approach of what can we do that is of greatest benefit? What can we do that is of greatest benefit for our people? Not what can we do that would make us seem the most charitable. The posturing of Democrats on immigration is largely uh, premised uh, upon, is largely built upon America as a soup kitchen for the world's needy and a jobs program for those who are going to need additional assistance. That's how Democrats approach this, right? We, we are a place where anyone can seek shelter from the storm of the rest of the world, which sounds really nice. But when you're $20 trillion in debt and now running close to a trillion dollars a year, even under a Republican president, and when you have a political culture as well as just a culture culture to maintain and uphold, when assimilation is supposed to be the bedrock of your immigration policy, not a, a, a series of balkanized mini states within the United States, that's when you really need to stop and think, hold on, what is going on here? And when you hear what the left is saying right now, it should be troubling to every American. I mean, going into this midterm, understand that they will be pushing for amnesty. They will be pushing for that and nothing else on immigration. They do not want a secure border. In fact, what the Obama administration accomplished through really deceit in the second term in Obama's second term at the border, was to appear to be acting within some semblance of the law, but really to create a massive, intentional, open-door policy for people who arrive with children, and then leave that problem for the Trump administration to clean up and get yelled at, and oh, oh, oh my gosh, all the talking points come flying out about how they're so, you know, they're so mean, so cruel, so heartless. They're, you're separating children! Oh, but Obama separated children, too. Did you know that? No, he didn't. Well, yes, he did. How many of the children that are showing up at the border are, in fact, unaccompanied in the first place? Where are those parents, by the way? You know, do we ever get to address that component here? You're going to send your kid or allow your kid to travel through Mexico unaccompanied, perhaps enlist the services of a coyote, a human trafficker, to get them into the country? Putting children, I mean, this is child endangerment, folks. You don't hear people saying that, do you? They're endangering children by allowing them to do this at the border. And the United States, in our very, I think, undervalued in this moment benevolence at the border, is taking people in, feeding them, clothing them, housing them, making sure that they are they have medical care. And we're now to be called Nazis for this. And I don't mean that, that, I'm not exaggerating their exaggeration. They are saying this. As I've told you before, my own boss, former boss at the CIA, Mike Hayden, someone I knew to be a, a pretty smart and squared away guy at the time, has just lost it. He is suffering from Trump derangement syndrome. Tweeting out photos of concentration camps and saying that's what's going on at the border. But you see, the problem with the Democrats taking these positions and posing in this way as some kind of moral champion without having to make any difficult choices on immigration is that they keep upping the ante for each other as well. They will say more and more inflammatory and untrue things about what's really happening at the border. They will ramp up the rhetoric about how Trump is 
a racist and a xenophobe and his policies are all about, you know, keeping America or making America white. And, you know, this is what they'll say. This is what the rhetoric turns into. And nothing really sounds too crazy for them. Um, you know, I didn't get a chance to mention this to you, but there was a a play performed out in Los Angeles last week where they had the, it was the Diary of Anne Frank, something I'm sure you're all familiar with, right? Anne Frank in Amsterdam. She was a, a Jewish teenager who, with her family, was hiding from the Nazis and wrote a diary. And then, I, I mean, the book, it does not, does not have a happy ending. Um, they did that play in Los Angeles, but instead of Nazis, it was ICE agents. How many of you have seen major news coverage of what's gone on in Portland the last week? I've talked to you about the encampment and the feces and the assaults on officers, the doxing of ICE officers. These are attacks on federal agents, folks. You know, we're all supposed to be worried about Jim Acosta as he stares into the mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the handsomest Acosta of all? Oh, man, I'm just a journalist, man. I'm just doing my job trying to speak truth to power. Sure you are, buddy. That's cute. It's a clever little little pose you've taken. We're supposed to be worried about the civility toward Acosta. Meanwhile, you've got ICE officers being threatened and menaced and harassed for doing their jobs in Portland, Oregon. Very little media coverage of this. You have journalists being assaulted for covering the insanity of the anti-ICE protests because they don't want people to really know the truth. They just want to share it on their own little anarchist live streams. And we will get into some more of the rhetoric that we're hearing from people. Um, The Morning Joe show, which I I just, I would be wondering at some point, other than, uh, you know, hair products and pastel sweaters, like what does Joe Scarborough stand for right now? I don't know. I, I, I couldn't tell you what the answer is other than it feels like he stands for Joe Scarborough I don't know the man I just know his work never met him never talked to him don't care to but you know he doesn't care to talk to me who cares uh, but his work is embarrassing these days on television I I see what's going on there and you know others call him have have cute names for him which I can't repeat because it's their name for him not mine uh, but he had on his show a professor who has who is making here, it sounds like to me, some kind of comparison between slavery, the issue of slavery, and ICE. Uh, Putting this on the same moral plane. You've got to hear this. Play play clip three. I want to ask a question about the moral crisis that ICE has put the nation in. Particularly 1850, there was the Fugitive Slave Law. Mm. And because the Fugitive Slave Law did what it did, suddenly the issue of slavery was nationalized. It wasn't just in the South. Now it was a moral question that even Emerson had to confront in Massachusetts. So now we have ICE, the crisis of ICE. We have people trying to protect their family members uh, from being snatched from them. This fear that you talked about. How has ICE, this 248% increase of jail transfers, the 42% increase in arrests, how has this created a kind of moral crisis that is nationalized now? A nationalized moral crisis on the same plane, or at least spoken of in the same paragraph, as slavery. That's what you're hearing now on cable news shows with supposed experts and and political analysts. I've got an idea. If you don't want to be separated from your family at the border, don't illegally cross into the United States at the border. 
You know, th- this is what they what, what they don't tell you is that a a majority of the people who are being first of all, majority of the youth in detention by Immigration and Customs Enforcement are arriving unaccompanied. You don't hear that many places, do you? Not exactly great parenting going on in some of these situations, is there? But you know, not a lot to say that. And then when you add to it that they're crossing illegally in the country, it's illegal for anyone to cross outside of a port of entry. They're trying folks to sneak in, getting caught, and then saying, yeah, I want asylum. Give me asylum. Because I've been told that if you say, oh, my country's too violent, I might get asylum here. Why do we even have an immigration policy? Just show up, say you're from Central America, and say that you want asylum. You don't have any, you have any papers or documents? No, I don't have any because, you know, MS-13 stole them from me. Well, I guess we have to let you into the country, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in five years for your court date. That is the reality of immigration at the southern border right now. You might say to yourself, well, Buck, that doesn't seem like much of a policy at all. And also, are, are we allowed to have... You know, there are some fundamental philosophical questions that Democrats do not get pushed on. And I keep saying that this is the conversation we should really have. I want to ask Democrats who can't squirm out of answering it, who should who who shouldn't be allowed to stay in this country? I want to know what what person that's arrived in the United States in the last year and and is illegal in this country, they would be okay with us sending home. Is it just rapists and murderers that are they're allowed to be expelled from the country? Because if that is how they feel, then they are officially for open borders. How many of you even saw the headline from DHS that you had six? Hundred thousand visa overstays last year alone. Now, a good portion of those are students, but a lot of them aren't. And by the way, those students, maybe some of them decide they just want to stay as well. But for those who aren't students, those who come here and decide to just blend into the rest of the country and forget about the fact that they're not allowed to be here as permanent residents, think of how easy this is. If 600,000 visa overstays came to the country last year and you start adding this up, let's say only a, a fraction of them plan to stay forever. Well, that's at least maybe let's call it 100, 200,000 a year that are just, they're not coming through the southern border. They're just flying in and staying. Which is also why, I'm sorry, I do not believe the number 11 million. They've kept it the same for as long as they have. Because they realize if the American people knew the full extent of what has happened in this country with illegal immigration, they would freak out, and rightly so. It's more like 15 to 20 million. And I've argued with some immigration hawks on this, but I'm, it just doesn't make sense. I'm sorry, people are not going back to Mexico by the millions. It's not happening. And when you look at the numbers, you've got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of illegal crossings year in and year out. They're not illegal crossing because they you know, want to make a quick trip to Costco. Democrats do not have answers. They have moral postures. They are unwilling to be pushed on these issues to to give real answers, because if they were sharing their real answers with the American people, there we would there would be a political revolt against them. We're just I've even got we've got so much more here from you know, what, what they've been saying about ICE. And there's just craziness, folks. We're, so we're really going to dive into immigration this hour. And by the way, my friend Ben Weingarten will be joining us later on in the show. He's done some great work on Feinstein and her ties to uh, to China. So, uh, and we've also got David Harsanyi joining, and we'll talk to him about deplatforming and these First Amendment 
battles. So I might talk to him and then come back to some of this immigration stuff. I got, I got a lot. Here's, I, I like it when I get to just determine what matters instead of, oh, here's a blaring headline. We in the hut, my friends, we like to roll up the sleeves and uh, take Occam's razor like a chainsaw to the nonsense. We'll be right back. A sanctuary city, yeah. <laughs> a sanctuary city, yeah. <laughs> a sanctuary city, yeah. So that's the mayor of Philadelphia. We played that for you a couple of times. So you could really hear it. Jim Kenny, who is uh, who is who is literally dancing in that clip, and you could hear him singing. How excited, um, how excited he is that Philadelphia is a sanctuary city, and. You know, as as people like like this guy who are supposed to be uh, government officials who first and foremost will protect their constituents, uh, keep in mind that this is what uh, this is what the other side of a sanctuary city is. Here is DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen uh, on what happened in Philadelphia recently. Play clip five. It could have been prevented and it should have been prevented. We owe the American people better. I mean, this is a perfect example of when jurisdictions decide not to cooperate with federal law enforcement, we put our communities at risk. I mean, what that required was that the men and women of DHS go back into community at their own risk and the risk of the community where the criminal is uh, to try to reinterdict and detain that person. Yeah, that's right. So. What she's referring to is a uh, is a child rapist there, a child rapist um, who, because Philadelphia's a sanctuary city, was able to slip through the cracks. Here's the story on Fox News. Uh, the Justice Department highlighted the case of child rapist Juan Ramon Vasquez, who just pleaded guilty to illegal reentry. The illegal immigrant from Honduras previously was in Philadelphia custody on local charges back in 2014. But when those charges were dropped a year later, city officials ignored an ICE detainer. Vasquez was later arrested and convicted for raping a child and unlawful con- uh, sexual contact with a minor. He's been serving between 8 and 20 years in prison. So Philadelphia decided to be a sanctuary city. And Philadelphia, on top of that, now should have on its conscience, the mayor, Kennedy, should have on their conscience that they released as a matter of policy, is uh, Juan Ramon Vasquez, instead of honoring a federal law enforcement request to, hey, hold on that guy, we're coming to get him, they said, no, 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 let's let him go, folks, because they are a sanctuary city, right? You heard that guy. They're so excited about it. It's such a great thing. And that criminal raped a little girl afterwards, something that will haunt her for the rest of her life and her family, and those who love her, and those around her. But, you know, we're a nation of immigrants, right? Like, we, we shouldn't actually obey federal law. This is what we are up against. Liberals who are unserious about what immigration policy really is, they're unserious about rule of law, and they do not care about the negative side effects of their open arms, open door, open borders policy. Because it makes them feel good, you see. Because they're not the ones that suffer the consequences, and they get to act like they just care so much. And if you don't agree with them, well, that's because, my friends, you're not nice like they are.
Who's holding the line for America? Buck Sexton is back. Team, I want to take a quick break from talking about immigration and switch to the fight for the First Amendment, uh, which is underway right now in ways that I think people are just beginning to grasp. We've got somebody who's been very thoughtful on this issue and uh, you can even say on the front lines of the fight for First Amendment freedom. It's a lot of alliteration, though. David Harsanyi is with us. He is a senior uh, senior writer at The Federalist and also the author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. David, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. So uh, you've got this piece uh, caught my attention. Read it today. Social media giants shouldn't be arbiters of appropriate speech. Um, you know, I, I, I would love to think that this is going to catch on, David, but I, I'm really worried that liberals have now awoken to the power they have, that the wokeness is going to be something that is now pushing these social media platforms to just start playing favorites. And you and I know that conservatives are going to lose this one. Right. I mean, and and that's why it's complicated. I mean, if you believe in a lot of people in my Twitter feed and elsewhere, I hear, you know, arguing that we should, you know, that Twitter and Google and, uh, you know, Facebook are like utilities and they need to be fair. And it reminds me of a, sort of the fairness doctrine or something like that. I think it's a bad idea because in the end, liberals always use the power of the state better than conservatives. And you're going to end up losing that. That's besides the whole idea of having the state involved in speech in the first place. Um, on the other hand, we already see this sort of thing going on uh, where liberals, for instance, go after the NRA. You know, if you start calling people terrorists and then you ask Apple to take them off their platform, then it's, it's really what you're doing to Alex Jones and so forth. Now, I'm not comparing Alex Jones to the NRA. I'm saying that liberals compare them to each other, and that's the problem. They, they conflate those two sorts of things because in the end, they really want to go after mainstream conservatives. And, and this whole notion of, of conversational health, by the way, you know, Dorsey, who's the CEO of Twitter, he, he's been kind of later to this one than some of the others, but he's the, con, the quote, conversational health guy. I think that, that's, if that catches on, that's a terrifying phrase. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, you know, there's this thing where, where for instance, let's just say anti-Semitism. So I'm Jewish. I get some of that on Twitter. And, you know, we, we, we start treating words as if it's the same thing as someone not giving me a job because I'm Jewish. Do you know what I'm saying? We, we treat, you know, so... You can hear something bad and you can push the mute button or the block button. Um, I don't, you know, I just don't understand why we start, when or when we started treating speech as if it was some kind of assault or terrorism. Um, I'm sorry, I get offended quite often. I just turn it off or mute it or, or, or just deal with it. We've become this nation where we can't hear anything we don't like. I don't, I've never clicked on an InfoWars Alex Jones link in my life, I don't think. And uh, my life was going on fine. I don't really care about him or that channel, but I do care uh, that, that we're going to have billionaire CEOs deciding what speech is acceptable for people to hear. I mean, they can do it, but I, don't, I just don't think it's the right thing because then now they put themselves into a position where they have to sort of be adjudicate every kind of word and speech and, and sight, and, and it just seems like a, a slippery slope, even though I know that's sort of cliche. Well, I, I keep saying, or keep seeing, rather, these uh, notifications that fellow conservatives get for essentially a, a complaint being lodged against them, and they'll show the tweet, and they'll show the message from Twitter, and to me, I mean, this is just, it's, in, it's intimidation. I mean, it, it's, yep. it's obviously just meant to, to put people on notice that, you know, we're going to try... We're going to keep taking shots at your ability to be on these platforms if you're a conservative, even if they're frivolous, until we hit one and knock you off. And that's going to be in the back of your mind every time you want to share a thought on something. 
Right. And, you know, and, and in some sense, your livelihood or many people's livelihood is tied to their social media presence. And then if you can threaten that, you can sort of cow them into not saying things that they might believe. Um, and it's just a bad, you know, it's just a bad future, then, I think, at least for conservatives. Uh, you know, we, we also hear so much about, uh, David, about how Russian interference in the election. And, you know, I think you've been very sober minded about this. I mean, you know, some people have just completely lost their minds, including some conservatives that I, that I like as people, but just think they've something's really happened, like they've had a break with reality. But when you look at, at how how minimal that was in terms of the actual that the amount of Facebook accounts that were really getting viewed and the amount of dollars spent on Facebook ads and stuff. And then you compare it to you've got a bunch of. Yeah, there 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 are companies. These is the private sector and the public sector. But you've got a bunch of companies run by essentially evangelist progressives. I mean, really on on social issues, hardcore progressives who are not only able to influence the conversation, they can do it in ways that we don't even get to know about. It can all be based on algorithms and kind of obscure terms of service. You know, what happens if you lose that debate with Twitter when they take away your entire account? The answer is you got nothing. Right. And it's it is scary. And, you know, to going back to the to the whole Russian thing, I you know, I'm of two minds. I care very much that Russia tries to meddle in our election. I also don't care very much that they're doing it because it doesn't affect my life at all. I vote any way I want. Hearing something or seeing something, they're a mind control raise. And the idea that we should be, you know, so, you know, that, that they're stealing an election because they have, you know, spent twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 on ads through Facebook, I mean, it's just laughable. And, and they know it's laughable, in my opinion. I mean, I think some people have lost their minds. I think a lot of these people are just cynical and know what they're doing. As far as Twitter, again, I mean, it's, it's a dangerous thing here. I, I believe in, let's say, free markets and capitalism. I believe that there'll be, if, if you push people out, there'll be a, a marketplace and someone else will uh, create something for them. But Twitter has become such a sort of wide-ranging uh, platform, especially for people in, in, in the political world, that it is kind of scary. So hopefully, because there are many conservatives in the world, uh, Twitter won't scare them away. But th I think that that's why I worry that just even taking a step toward, you know, this Alex Jones thing and deplatforming him is in, on YouTube, for instance, is problem because um, not because Alex Jones is a conservative, but because these people call everyone white supremacist liberals. So to them, that, that was no my next that was my next point to you, David. And it's it's like you're it's like you're, you know, living rent free I'm inside in my mind, head man. already. Yeah, man, you're, you're already on the inside here. I, I just got to tell you. I can't help but notice that this whole movement of deplatforming speech equals violence, which you'll also hear a lot, especially in the campus speech debates, but speech is tantamount to or equals violence. Deplatforming is a legitimate form of, uh, you know, of, of essentially, you know, disapproving of somebody's words or thoughts. And also the expansion of the term white supremacist to essentially include anything that would upset people in the comments section of Daily Kos or the Huffington Post. I mean, white right. supremacy has been expanded beyond recognition now as a term. I don't think that's an accident. No, it's not an accident. They've been doing this for years. I mean, they, they've been conflating on purpose mainstream conservative views, which are, are, are liberal, small L mostly, um, you know, about the Constitution, about smaller government, what have you, with, you know, fascism, Nazi, whatever, racism, white supremacy. And so, of course, if if they're getting rid of hate speech, that that would be next. I mean, I've you have writers in Slate or the New Yorker who accuse every Trump voter of being a white supremacist or motivated by race. Um, 
when it's funny to me in a sense, or it's ironic at least, that the, anyone who says that speech is violence is basically peddling an authoritarian idea. Because once speech is violence, you can limit speech because violence is something that's illegal and hurts others. In or, ways or, or you can use violence real. as Antifa does in response to speech you don't like because they've already started the violence. Right. So it, it's a dangerous and it's actually a very stupid idea, but mostly it's an authoritarian idea. And that leads leads to to people being able to, to, to ban speech and, and, and can create, you know, hate speech laws and all kinds of ridiculous things that not only undermine free expression, but 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 are used to just silence people that you don't like. And that's exactly what they're doing. Now, another thing they do that people don't talk about so often is that by calling everyone a white supremacist, they're actually giving cover to real white supremacists, which I think are a small, very small fringe group, but still you're giving them cover. And meanwhile, you're not even talking about the other side, which has plenty of its own, you know, radicals and extremists. Yeah, I, I think that this is this is also a moment where I say you know, there, there are all these I, I know about them. There are all these they were going to do these kind of retrospectives and people are talking a bit about the one year anniversary of Charlottesville. And I think that there was just a permit given for this uh, another, you know, white nationalist rally or whatever the case, may, whatever they're calling it. And these are losers. Nobody likes them. They can't get jobs anywhere. They're reviled. Their safety is under real threat whenever they appear in public. But we're supposed to think that this is a threat to the American body politic. I mean, it's just it's just exaggerated nonsense. I mean, yeah, they're scum, but everyone knows they're scum. Yeah. Listen, they can't get a few hundred people nationally together. One one time in Portland lately, I don't know when it was, I have 50 people showed up. It is so ridiculous. You know they, the, the media or the mainstream media gives them so much attention that it blows, you know, they, they're scaremongering with the attention that they give this small group. Meanwhile, they ignore that there, you know, are Farrakhan lovers leading the women's march movement. That doesn't matter. But these few nudniks in Charlottesville or wherever they're going to be next are going to be given so much attention that it's, it's, it's preposterous. Why? Because they want to make it seem like, you know, Trump has, has sort of, you know, given cover to this movement and allows them to exist because he said something stupid once. It, it, it's just, it's really demented and skewed. And it really, you know, I'm sure there are people walking around in, you know, in, in liberal city, you know, a liberal city somewhere who actually believe that out in the, in America, there are a bunch of Nazis walking around all the time. Are, are you, marching. this is a little, a little bit of a, of a switch up, David, before we let you go. And everyone, by the way, check out David's book, get on Amazon first freedom, a ride through America's enduring history with the gun. Uh, David, are you a little surprised at the at the accosting of of the media? Meaning that you've got all these journalists now who are just you know, oh, I'm just I'm so under threat. You know, I'm hearing people saying, oh my gosh, like I received a death threat recently, which is bad. But like every conservative I know has received death threats. I've received threats from people. Like this is not some like what is this all of a sudden? Yeah, First Amendment is very important, except people can't jeer a reporter, then the First Amendment becomes a threat to their safety. Of course, I don't want anything to happen to any reporters, but I think they seem to forget that a Bernie fan tried to take out the entire Republican leadership in a baseball field in Alexandria not long ago, and treating political violence or the threat of it as if, as if listen, journalists see themselves as soldiers, as, as, as a movement, and uh, they're so sanctimonious about it that people are, are sick of it. So they, in Acosta, for instance, who acts like, you know, I don't know. Like, like he's the story all the time. He can't be surprised when people make him the story. You know. So yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you know why? Because the incentive for journalists now is not to be a good journalist whose name isn't, doesn't appear. The incentive is, and listen, I'm a pundit, so I, I get it, but the incentive is to have an opinion. And they do more and more openly because that makes them stars in, their, in our little universe here. And, um, Dude, and you, do, you think, do you think that the, that the uh, it's not just CNN, but that's the one that comes to mind the most. I think actually that they're, they're the Washington Post and New York Times also are in this category of, of we are a nonpartisan, objective news organization, that model, instead of just saying, look, like we're a liberal paper or we're a liberal network or whatever. Do you think that that's finally going away? I, I see the first real cracks in this. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope so. For a long time, I've advocated that people should just be open about their political uh, positions or where they stand ideologically because we can just read their stuff. It doesn't make it untrue. It doesn't make it wrong. It might even make it writer in the sense that I know where you're coming from. I know who you're after. And there's nothing wrong with that. And this way we can have reporters on staff, if you want, that even that out. Or we can have newspapers that you want that even that out. For instance, you know, the Koch brothers or whoever, all these big donors give tons of money to politicians and to movements and to think tanks. They should be buying media outlets and newspapers and evening out the media bias. And we should just be open about it. When I was growing up, we bought newspapers. We knew what every newspaper was really about right and uh, I well think i mean i had i had raheem kasama last week who's who's british and he's just like in the uk you know you, you, the the newspapers are affiliated with specific political parties i mean it's it's not well, it wasn't it that way in the at the fountain you know in the yes. america it was that way as well i mean but it was much worse than it is today even so yeah it's um, crazy anyway. i think it's i don't know if it's healthier but i think that this is not working this way because yeah. It is not good for the republic. It's not good for our democratic institutions to have a media that's not trusted by most people. I agree. David Harsani, everybody, check out his latest, The Federalist. David, thanks for stopping by the Freedom Hut. Thanks for having me. Team, we have uh, much more coming. Went a little long there. I do want to finish up our discussion about immigration. We've also got some updates on the, uh, the situation with the Mueller probe. Maybe we'll talk a little Manafort, although, you know, I keep saying the Manafort thing is not as interesting as people want to pretend it is. We've got a phenomenal deep dive coming up with ben weingarten about china spy ties to diane feinstein you are going to want to stick around for that i'm telling you you won't hear it anywhere else and it's really important stuff we'll be right back It's time to hear from one of the dumbest governors in America, perhaps in the history of America, which is a place that has a history. Governor Cuomo on ICE, play clip four, please. I will do nothing cooperatively with ICE. Uh, I have sent sent them letters asking for an investigation. Uh, I have said if they do any criminal acts, which a police force can do, uh, we will take criminal action against ICE uh, because I believe they are politically motivated. I mean, this guy is is not just a moron, but he's he's scary. He is, this is the governor, folks, who is the top law enforcement official of one of the biggest, most important states in the country, at least economically speaking, um, who is essentially threatening federal law enforcement officers, just saying, you know, I got my eyes on you. Would he ever say this about the FBI? I mean, the FBI guys would be like, really, Cuomo? You want to, you want us to look at some of your associates? You want to look at some of your dealings? Go look at the Moreland Commission, folks. There was a whole corruption commission set up in New York State that just kind of got shut down. What happened? Oh, it's getting a little too close to home. Didn't wasn't allowed to finish. Wasn't allowed to finish. But but Cuomo is so shameless that he is not just willing to throw ice under the bus here. 
he's willing to go beyond that and threaten them. Like, he will have state troopers. First of all, I mean, I know law enforcement, it's the last thing in the world they want to do is, I mean, you know, he'd have a mutiny on his hands, okay? There's no way. But he, he makes it sound like he's going to have state troopers go in and kick down the door of an ICE office and, you know, really cause a problem here, folks. Because what they're doing is politically motivated. They are carrying out the law, you imbecile. How is it politically motivated? What, what does that even mean? And, you know, when you have somebody of Cuomo's stature taking this kind of tone, the, the downstream effects, I mean, anybody listening would have to think, wow, this guy, this guy is, is, is look, he's, what he's saying is dangerous. Why would other people, why would constituents in his home state of New York think that ICE is to be trusted or to be taken seriously? You know, this, this demonization of, of, of immigration enforcement in this country is, is really, it's really disgraceful. And it reminds me so much of what was going on with the Black Lives Matter movement, where for reasons of political convenience, Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself, uh, were running with this just false and destructive narrative that American police officers, black, white, any color you can think of, are racists who murder black men for sport. That was the narrative. They can tell you that it was about reforming police, but I was there, man. I heard what was going on. That's not true. And now it's at Immigrations and Customs Enforcement are, you know, Nazis hunting down people. It's just appalling. The FBI says that home title theft is one of the fastest growing crimes out there. And look, you've got to brace yourself because if you've ever had your credit card stolen, it is nothing compared to the hell you're in for once an identity thief takes control of your home's title. You know, everything is stored online these days, including your home's title. And that means the bad guys can get to you and get to it just through cyber means, all right? Domestic and international bad guys, they hunt down American homeowners because they know we've got a lot of equity in our homes. I saw a an example of this where they walked me through how easy it would be for the bad guys to steal my family home's title and take loans against it. Folks, it is chilling how quickly it is, uh, how quickly it can be done. For just pennies a day, Home Title Lock protects my most viable asset, my family's home. Register now for a free analysis and discover if your home's title has been compromised. That's a $60 value for free. Visit HomeTitleLock.com. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome back, team. We got a lot to discuss. I wanted to take some calls in the uh, last hour, but I got a little carried away talking to David Harsanyi. I- I've always really liked Harsanyi. He's a good guy. You know, he worked at the Blaze for a short while, actually. I remember that. And uh, he kind of did a little early mentoring in my editorial writing career. He's, he's just a good dude. Uh, very, very smart guy and very humble about it. Um, but I went along with him. and We had some calls up, so I wanted to get to them because the lines lit up because I know you guys we, we care about immigration, right? You don't care that much about Manafort's ostrich coat, although it was really ugly. You know what else, Producer Mike, i got to tell you about? And I'm, I'm going to feel a little wimpy telling you this. i got a little story for you guys. So, as you know, I love milk. Okay? I think of myself 
as something of a milk connoisseur. Um, I have told you some truisms, like soy milk is something that you should not even clean your bathtub with, and, in the words of Ron Swanson, skim milk is water that is lying about being milk. Go whole, whole or nothing, baby. You know, And if you're lactose intolerant, okay, I'll make some exceptions. Almond or coconut are acceptable. But those are juices, not milks. If we're going to be, although actually I think coconut, maybe I throw a flag on that. We'll see. But there's a guy in my office. Can't name names. Somebody I know in the, in the office building, we'll say. All right, it's sort of broadening out a little bit. And he drinks raw milk. And I'm thinking to myself, this has got to be like the Dom Perignon of milk. It's got to be the, the good stuff, you know, the, the top tier. This is the top shelf of milk. Because it is unpasteurized and unhomogenized and, you know, straight from the cow, baby, straight from the udder. And I'm a city, as you know, I'm a city slicker. I'm a city boy. And I think, I figure, you know what? I've got, I've got years and years of whole milk drinking under my belt. I'll even, you know what? I'm not going to lie to you folks. Sometimes I even put a little bit of half and half in a cup and have a little bit of that. You know what I mean? You only live once. Maybe I'm not going to live that long because of cholesterol and fat. But nonetheless, you only live once. So I... I, this guy had been saying for a while, like, you, you want to you try it? And I also don't want to make this seem like, you know, it's not like he's holding out his, holding out his trench coat and saying, you know, I got the good stuff, the, you know, the raw milk, you know, what do you need? I, I got what you need, the raw milk. So I said, all right, you know, I'm not going to be a wimp about this. And I drank, and dude, I, I, had, I had some raw milk. I'm going to tell you something. It was delicious. It was incredible. It was kind of almost like drinking yogurt, but it tasted like milk and it was so good. And now my stomach has been making noises and cramping and things all day. I mean, this, I don't, it's, not, it's not Montezuma's revenge. It's like Amish Gunderson's revenge, man. I am, whew, it's rough. Yeah, I learned my lesson, dude. I learned my lesson. Buck, Buck needs pasteurized and homogenized. I can't, I can't handle the real stuff, man. I'm a little disappointed in myself, so... That was my one and only experiment with drinking drinking raw milk straight from the udder. I mean, I was thinking that after this, I was going to be like, yeah, heading out to the farm myself, learn how to do it with my own two hands. Nope. Nope. Give me the, give me the mass-produced stuff right out of, you know, right out of Costco or whatever. That's how I want it. All right. That was, that was my little adventure with raw milk for the day, folks. I don't know. If, if any of you have had it differently, good for you. I'm going to get all these Facebook messages, by the way. You are such a wimp, city boy. And you know what? Maybe that's true. But... I gave it a shot, folks. I gave it a shot. All right, we got Lonnie in West Virginia on the line. What's up, Lonnie? Hey, Buck, how you doing, brother? I'm good, man. Good to hear from you. Hey, um, you know, if I if I knowingly harbored a fugitive or uh, somebody that was uh, running from the law, I'd be arrested. Would I not? I I believe so. Harboring a fugitive is, in fact, a crime. So, so Governor Cuomo and all these mayors of these cities who. Knowingly let fugitives go or people that ICE is after have been requested. Why, why can't they be arrested? Why can't we send somebody in there? Now, it's probably not going to stick, but put the cuffs on them, take them out, and show them you, you can't do that. You're under arrest. You knowingly harbored a fugitive or somebody who broke the law. Well, you know, there have been some... Uh... Enforcement actions, I forget in what states, but ICE has gone into a few places in the last 24 hours to go after employers. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that that's 
a, a step in the right direction because you got to go after employers too. But I mean, to your point about sanctuary city jurisdictions, Lonnie, there are you. Are you heard the governor of New York? He's threatening to put to sick his uh, law enforcement. You know, his essentially use his police powers in the state of New York against federal law enforcement. And this is crazy. Can't do that. Who's got the upper hand, federal or the state? Uh, you know, I mean, I don't. I guess it depends on the circumstances here. I mean, in terms of who's got the upper hand in terms of the law, it's obviously the federal. Uh, the, you know, the feds do here. Immigration is the province of the federal government. I mean, that's just well understood. There's really no question about that. Um, but to try and impede, I mean, you're right. This does start to feel, Lonnie. I, I, you're getting to a very important point here. It starts to feel more than just disrespect for the rule of law and lawlessness to actually being criminal obstruction of the law. You know, at what we hear about, oh, Trump tweeted this or Trump tweeted that. At what point is a federal law or a state, uh, you know, state politician threatening to use law enforcement power or threaten or, or, for example, tipping off illegals that there's a raid coming? At what point is that actually criminal? At what point is that obstruction? If you start to want to ask these questions, at least. So I think you raise a very interesting one. I don't have a clear answer for you. But I appreciate you calling in, my friend. And you're fired up about it. I am, too. Thank you, Lonnie, West Virginia. Dex in Tex, also known as San Antonio, Texas. Dex, what's up? Hey, when you come down here to Texas, why don't you get yourself a pair of those ostrich boots? You can buy them there in Austin when you get there. Oh, I like that idea. Anyway, that's not what I called. Um, I called to let you know that back in the 70s, uh, the uh, New York State tried to disarm U.S. Park Police, which are different than park rangers. They're actually federal law enforcement officers. And they were using the Sullivan Act as their justification, which has been around since, what, 1911 or so. And uh, they failed. They failed miserably because the U.S. law enforcement officers had primacy over state and local, uh, or primacy, however you want to call it. Uh, And uh, so they failed miserably in court. But it did go to court. I didn't. That's a very interesting backstory. I do know a bit about the Sullivan Act because it's the reason why if you're caught with an illegal firearm in New York, you're facing mandatory prison time, which sucks uh but yeah i i don't know that backstory that's really interesting i i believe it by the way i mean new york is is fanatically new york city is fanatically anti-gun new york city is so anti-gun decks that and and i feel badly for people i know in the nypd who have had to do this because you know they're carrying out orders but they should never be given this order new york has um has arrested people who were transiting via flight through new york city if their connecting flight was canceled and they had to uncheck and then recheck a handgun, all of this had been done legally, by the way. They have arrested people for a legal handgun position, uh, possession in New York City because they did not have a New York City permit while they were transiting through the airport. They've actually done that. I mean, that's how bad they are on this issue. So I can believe that they would go after... You know, everybody and anybody, including I, I want to look up the backstory here. Why? Why were they trying to disarm park police, by the way? What was the rationale? Well, OK, the rationale was mostly in New York City was they well, thought, right. that's okay, where that's where all the bad because the rest of New York State, by the way, you know, you can have a shotgun, you can have a rifle. It's really New York City where they're just gun free zone wannabes. Right. What they what they had was uh, the park police were transiting back and forth from uh, Liberty Island, where the Statue of Liberty is in the harbor. But that's the only park there that is actually U.S. Park uh, Service land. And so they were arguing that you could not have your weapon when you were off the park. But because they are federal law enforcement officers, their jurisdiction extends to all 50 states and the territories of the United States. 
So it doesn't matter where they are. They still have jurisdiction and therefore authority. And so it ultimately it ended up, I, I think, going to federal court, uh, even to the appellate court. I don't think New York took it to the uh, Supreme Court, uh, but it, they lost. They lost miserably. And uh, so the, the Sullivan Act was for that aspect of it. They could not enforce it on uh, federal law enforcement. But think if they'd been successful there, then they could have said the same thing about U.S. Marshals. Right. Yeah, or, or you know, FBI, if they weren't on federal premises, if they weren't uh, on federal land and, you know, in some capacity or in a federal office, then then they could force them to be disarmed, too. It's crazy. But by the way, you know, Dex, that was actually what, uh, now that I think about it, DCV Heller was about a guy who was licensed, I believe, as a security guard to carry a firearm in D.C., but wasn't allowed to bring it to his home. Right. So right. That, that's how crazy some of these, that's how crazy some of these uh, situations get. Dex, Shields High, always a great call, man. Thanks for calling in. Very, very, very eloquent. Very good radio voice, too. I feel like Dex must, in a former life or maybe in a future life, Dex would be a radio host. He's got, he's got, the guy's got pipes, as we say in the business. Dex got game. Uh, Julie in Clarksville, Tennessee. Hello, Julie. Hey, Buck. Shields high. Shields high to you. Yay. Uh, I hear you had some tummy troubles. Raw milk just not sit with me the way I thought it would. You know, it's tough well, stuff. It was, it was cow milk, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It was from a moo cow. Well, I, got a, I got a cure for you. What? Goat milk. Raw goat milk. Really? Is it why? Is yeah, that just like less? Tummy there. Well, but why is the goat milk better? I mean, I actually well, like the taste of goat milk a lot. Well, we raise dairy goats, and that's all we drink. And it's got a smaller meal uh, molecule, and it's great for people who are lactose intolerant. We swear by it. Huh? That's really interesting. Yeah, give it a try. I, I will tell you, to, my my grandparents you. had a place in uh, in in uh, the Hudson Valley in New York, and right down from them was a goat farm. And when I was a kid. I get so excited in the springtime to go down and try to try to hang out with the baby. Baby goats are awesome. Like, I always wanted they a baby are. goat as a pet, but I didn't really want them to grow up. And apparently you can't just have them when they're babies. They grow up. They do grow up, but they have quite a personality. And if you grow up, if they grow up with you around them, they're still, they're like, they're like dogs. They're great. All right. But, that's and, very cool. Yeah. And, and you know, it really, you won't, you won't be like um, being difficult to be around because I'm sure you're. You're you're full of pleasantries today. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not great. I'm trying to I'm trying to keep it all together here. But Julie, thank you for calling in. Thanks for the advice. And and uh, as we said, Shields High. I, I got to talk to you more about. Uh, so I know we ran the we ran some calls in there. I know there's more coming in. But let me. Um, I want to get to actually my my old colleague. Uh, uh, well, an old colleague of mine. Did something very interesting. I've been talking about these uh, anti ice protests out in Portland. Well, someone's covering them finally. We'll get to that, and then uh, perhaps a bit on the. I'm trying to stay away from the the Mueller probe stuff because I feel like it's I feel like it's so overplayed and overdone. There's some little updates we might get to, but you know I'm not just running off into that if I can avoid it. And the stuff I've got for you with Ben Weingarten on China and Feinstein's ties to China, I, you know, there's some days where I can tell you I just don't think you're going to hear this anywhere else, and it'll it's really important, really interesting, uh, really interesting stuff. So. That'll be uh, right at the top of the third hour. So with that, uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Don't forget Freedom Hut Podcast. We're planning to release one tomorrow. It'll be very exciting. Uh, I don't know on what or how exactly yet, but I'm working on it. And uh, last week's was with Raheem Kassam, which is a lot of fun. I've got a great guest, I think, lined up for next week, but I don't want to announce it until it's 100%. 
And uh, yeah, don't forget that. We'll be right back. Coffee is a constant in my life. And if you've ever found yourself wincing at the weak taste of coffee from one of those left-leaning commie brands, guess what? You don't ever have to deal with that nonsense again. Drink the most delicious stuff you can currently get and support an awesome, veteran-inspired and operated patriotic company in the process, Black Rifle Coffee. I am a coffee club member. I get it delivered to my door every month. And in fact, now I just got them to start delivering it to my office too, folks. That's how much I love Black Rifle, as well as my colleagues who don't want to touch any of the other K-Cups here. They just want Black Rifle. Also, if you're somebody that likes to do it yourself with either ground or whole beans, they can send that to you too. Black Rifle Coffee. Join the coffee or diet revolution. Visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Receive 15% off your order. Everybody listening to this should go check it out. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. This will become your coffee company if you give them a shot. So my old colleague from The Blaze, uh, Tommy Laren, was out in Portland, and she was asking questions, you know, about this Occupy ICE protest. Remember, they, they've they've dusted off the old Occupy political mobilization effort. Remember, Occupy Wall Street, and then Occupy this, and Occupy that, and Occupy all this different stuff. And, you know, Tommy Laren was out there asking what to the residents of Portland think about what uh, Occupy ICE has been doing, which, remember, this is the one that has, you know, feces and needles and all this stuff, and they're camping out outside of an Immigration and Customs Enforcement office. There's been violence. There's been Antifa stuff going on here. It's a mess, a mess. Journalists attack. Very little news coverage of this. Here's uh, what the, here are the answers that Tommy was able to get. Play 19. You've seen in the last couple of weeks, but your city has been kind of home to some protesting, some controversy, a lot of surrounding your mayor and the Occupy ICE movement. Right. Familiar with any of that? Yes. What do you think about it? I think that they should be able to protest. Do you think that Portland's got more militants in the last year, two years? I'll just say crazy. Crazy? We have a real problem with immigration. There's no simple answers here. Do you think that abolishing ICE is a step in the right direction? I think we have to uh, look at our entire immigration policy. Our policy has failed. Do you think that the protesting on either side has gotten out of hand? For sure. What do you think it's about? Do you think it's about really standing up for rights, or is it about getting attention? What do you think's the goal? I don't know. I think people have like a lot of personal vendettas and want to be like personal warriors or something. And Social justice warriors, maybe? For sure. On both sides, though. Fox News? Yeah, you're a too. But I'm nice. Doesn't matter. My name is Tommy. Don't care. You just it, don't like Fox News? No, because Fox News has nothing but a bunch of <laughs> capitalist lies. There you go. Portland. I mean, I know there's yeah. a lot of out-of-towners. They even I mean, stand you just saw, here. Absolutely. Unfortunately, the only views that are being projected out here are extremist views. Right. And so you get extremist reactions. And thus why you get extreme behavior of people coming up to you and flipping you off. Do you think a lot of the people in Portland are misinformed as to what ICE actually does? They just think about the kids coming over with their mom or whatever. They don't think about the corruption that's coming in, the drug dealers. Do you plan to go to any of the Occupy ICE protests? Uh, depending on what my work schedule looks like. There you go. So, look, not a lot of not a lot of uh, insightful answers there from the residents of Portland, but I'm just amazed that 
anybody who's asked, do you think that I should be abolished, doesn't immediately jump out and say, uh, no, that's that's moronic, right? People, well, you know, immigration policies failed and all that. Uh, you know, I got to sit down with the uh, the uh, head of Border Patrol, and uh, the interview is going to air tomorrow. And she has just been named today. She was acting head. Now she's the head of Border Patrol, and is the first ever female to hold that hold that position. And it's a really good interview. I mean, go check it out at hill.tv slash rising. It'll be on tomorrow morning. But I was able to ask her. Um, I was able to ask her about a lot of things that you're going to want to hear the details of. But one that really sticks out is I said, Willow, you've been in Border Patrol. And she says she's worked under four different presidents. Right. So some presidents last eight years. So, you know, long time, been decades in Border Patrol. And this woman is all about law enforcement. I mean, you'll see she is straight up L.E. top to bottom. And I said, you, you know, you hear about the wall and people keep saying that a wall will not work what do you say you've been on the border doing border patrol work for 20 some odd years and without missing a beat she goes you know it will very much very much uh the wall will will help i mean no question a wall will help so how is it that all these journal types can run and say oh a wall's so dumb it's not gonna help anything it's not gonna help anything it's like all the experts say, all the experts say a wall is not going to help. Okay, well, here is a pretty high-level expert who has spent her whole career on this issue. And she didn't say, like, a wall, not sure, and not really clear to me. It depends on how you do it. Is it a barrier? Blah, blah, blah. No, she says a wall will help. So what's the delay all about then, right? And, and, and then why, you know, this is where I get to. What is really fake news then, folks? How come so many media outlets are able to get away with peddling this narrative that everyone basically agrees, except Trump and the crazy Trump supporters, that a wall won't do anything? The head of Border Patrol on TV, on my show, looking at me with no uncertainty whatsoever, says a wall will help a lot. So why haven't we built a wall yet? Why won't Congress fund this? They have no real answers for you. Uh, you know, Congress is about as articulate on immigration for the most part as some of those people in Portland who are just like, yeah, like whatever. It depends on what like work is like. Occupy ice. It's such insanity. We've got much more team. Stay with me. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Take call from John in Atlanta. Hey, John. Hey. What's up, buddy? Fuck. Yes, sir. Podcast minion checking in. All right. Good to hear from you. Thank you. Good to talk to you. So um, I was going to talk about the press being the enemy of the people, but you were just talking about with ICE and border crossings and everything. It made me remi- it reminded me of a point that I always wanted to make to you, which is this. And this might sound hyperbolic, but the people are advocating for the open borders and not separating, you know, children from their parents. You can make the case that they're basically advocating child rape, right? And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but here's why. If you, you know how stats work with the FBI, like when you look at a murder rate, it's whatever, it's 5.5 per hundred thousand in the United States. Yeah. Okay. So the rape rate in a place like Honduras is probably... 40 per 100,000. 
or maybe 80 per hour. I mean, I, I have no idea, but okay, okay. So where are we going? It's somewhere around there. Well, the children, the girls that get transported by these coyotes, the rape rate is somewhere around 80%. It's very high. There's a lot right. of sexual abuse by the coyotes against, okay. particularly against female yeah, minors. Okay. That's true. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's about 80 percent. That is not even the highest rates in, in Honduras don't approach that. So by offering the incentive for them to get across the border and maybe get in and not have any kind of a, a wall, you're basically putting them at a rate of potential rape that's probably a thousand times higher than what it would be in a place like Honduras. I, I mean, I've got I, I'm kind of following you here, but I also want I, I don't. I mean, you're you're just pulling numbers, and I I have no idea if those eighty percent sounds high to me, but I don't know, and I wish I'd had a chance to ask the uh, border patrol chief about this one. Uh, and and I think it's important that we advocate. There's a difference between putting somebody in position where they're at a higher risk for something, and and also advocating specifically for that thing to happen to them. So I I do think we need to separate those two things. But so you're saying yeah. that by by uh, creating this look. But Obama and his team thought they were doing the the you know the warm-hearted thing, and and also the politically very expedient thing, which I think is much bigger than the warm-hearted part of it, by allowing anybody with a child to come to the U.S. border and basically say, "Let me in, I got a kid, and we're fleeing something," and sure. that has led to a whole lot more both kids unaccompanied and accompanied minors coming to the border. And some of those unaccompanied kids in particular have been subjected to sexual abuse, uh, which uh, that's been documented, too. So, yeah, there are those are the unintended but very nasty and and terrible consequences of the lawlessness, really, that the Obama administration was pushing for. So is that I mean, am I touching on all the areas of this that you're trying to hit or am I missing something? No, I think you are. The number I got of 70 is, I believe that came from an Amnesty International report. So I'm not pulling it out of the thin air. It's somewhere in that range, and you can look it up. But the other thing is this. You know the woman with the, the daughter that was photoshopped on the Time magazine next to Trump as if she was separated? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so she she wasn't about, separated. No, no, no. But she spent about $5,000, right? Yeah. To, okay. You pay a coyote $5,000. Now, let's do the currency conversion of what a person in the United States makes in a given year versus what someone in Honduras makes. So what if that $5,000 translates to, like, maybe thirty-five dollars or $40,000 for an American citizen? Now, if, if there's a wall and a much stronger presence on the border, you are now disincentivized from spending that kind of money. That's right. And so the, money, the money is only worth matter. it if you have a very... The money is only worth it if you have a very high expectation that you will successfully get in the United States, which is why the money, which is why these guys are getting paid. By the way, I would also like to add into this, John, that this has led to hundreds of millions of dollars by any calculation going directly into the hands of vicious Mexican drug cartels that are involved in human smuggling, child sexual predation, uh, smuggling heroin and fentanyl into American communities that are killing thousands and thousands of people. So... That's another unintended or, or secondary consequence of this whole pipeline of illegals essentially coming into the country. But, John, i, I got to leave it there for now. I do appreciate you calling in. Um, let's get to uh, – you know, I won't spend much time on this. Yeah, I'm actually thinking we're going to go Mueller-free today. I don't really think there's mu- – well, almost Mueller-free. Maybe I I overpromise with that one. But I, I think that there's not much need to get into Mueller's. 
Mueller case today. I think it's just so overdone. You know, the MSNBC last night, Maddow, I, I saw some commentary on this, and I went to check it out for myself. I, I, look, I don't get I don't get the whole MSNBC shtick in general, but Maddow in particular likes to do this thing where it's, you know, I have this thing. It's this amazing thing. And Stephen Colbert actually made fun of her for it last night. Although, he, he, you know, when liberals make fun of liberals, it's always like buddies making fun of each other with love. But she does, this, she does have this whole, like, I have in my hand the most amazing document. It's the most amazing thing. Once you see it, it will change your world. And then, you know, she does that for like 20 minutes, and then you're like, this isn't interesting. You know, this document sucks. She did that with Trump's tax returns. That was the really famous time. But she also had this whole thing last night with Devin, you know, Devin Nunes, when he's at a private fundraiser, will actually say things that are critical of Donald Trump. Yeah, so? So what? Who cares? Devin Nunes, you know, said that he thinks Trump's tweets sometimes aren't so great. Uh, they, they try to make this seem like it's a scandal, folks, the things that Nunes was saying at this fundraiser. Well, of course, you know, progressives surreptitiously tape people, you know, because they're scummy and underhanded, and that's what they do. And look, but it's fine. Any congressman who's got three brain cells to rub together knows that if you're in any kind of a public forum, you've got to assume you're being taped, right? What you're saying, you have to assume somebody may be taping it. You're not saying anything crazy, but they were trying to make it seem like it was such a big deal. It's because they hate newness. They have, there's a little bit of, of a second, you know, there's Trump derangement syndrome, but then there's also the secondary order effects, uh, secondary effects of that where people in Trump's orbit also that there's a derangement that people have toward them. And, you know, there's kind of a, a, a little, a B-team newness derangement syndrome, you know, a JV-level derangement syndrome. And, and that's on display because here's what was said at this event where, you know, and this is, Matto, oh my gosh, when you hear newness criticizing Trump, it's going to rock your world. It's like, no, it's not. Here, play it. Play clip 16. So there in lies, so it's like your classic catch-22 situation where... I mean, we're at a, this what, what puts us in such a tough spot. If Sessions won't unrecuse and Mueller won't clear the president, we're the only one, which is really the danger. That's why I keep, and thank you for saying it, by the way. I mean, we have to keep all these things. We have to keep the majority. If we do not keep the majority, all of this goes away. He's saying we got to keep the majority. I know you can hear the, the plates clanking with the silverware, which is always, I've given speeches at uh, luncheons, and that's always the problem. You got to clink, 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 clink. And especially with the audio, it drives you mad if you want to ever listen to it afterwards. But so Nunes is saying, yeah, we, we got we to gotta protect, protect the majority in the House because it's the only way they're ever going to get any answers about what really is going on with the Mueller probe. And also, the, the first, we know this, the Democrats, they're being a little quiet about it now. They're, they're being a little coy, a little sly. Because they know that if Trump doesn't have a House, a Republican majority, they're going to impeach him. But they're being quiet about it right now because they'd rather run these kind of stealth Democrat candidates, the, the, the Connor Lamb model. Yeah, you know, I, I, I served in the military and am personally pro-life, and, but I'm going to vote with Nancy Pelosi 90% of the time, and I'm a pro-union leftist redistributionist Democrat. You know, that, that's what you get going on. Oh, you know, I, I care more about the middle class and health care. Uh, but uh, really, I actually think that Bernie Sanders has got some great ideas. That's the kind of Democrat candidate they want to run. And they don't want the Republican base to really have it at front of their minds 
that impeachment is what's going to follow here if Trump does not have a uh, majority in the House to protect him. Uh, so, but I just, I listened to this, I, I thought there must have been, oh my gosh, Nunes must have said something bad. Rachel Maddow has secret audio from a progressive activist that is going to blow your mind. No, it doesn't. It's not important at all. It didn't matter one bit. Uh, and all right, I said no Mueller stuff, but there's one thing, there's one thing I wanted to throw in here, which is that I like that Rudy's out there making the case. I don't know if he's the best lawyer to handle this, but he's probably the best spokesman to handle this in many ways. Here's what Rudy said about the Mueller invest. I know a little Mueller stuff, but real quick, play seven. What do we need to know that this is a totally illegitimate investigation based on uh, a, a report, a dossier that was paid for by Hillary Clinton and the Democrats? Probably the biggest illegality so far, the biggest collusion so far, completely made up, completely made up, uh, led to nothing except several fraudulent Pfizer wires. I've never been involved in, a, in, in an investigation on, on either side. That's more illegitimate than this one. Where's the sense of justice on the part of, of Mueller, on the part of the Justice Department? And at some point, you got to say the irregularities, the double standard, the uh, way in which uh, people who hate Trump were put into primary positions of power. Yep. I'll let Rudy have the last word on that for today. We'll be right back. They can play politics all they want. What we know is it was a bad deal. We wanted to get out of the deal, and we did that. And now they're paying the price by, one, having all of the business that they were getting with all of the countries in the European Union and otherwise drop. But they're also getting the sanctions, which is going to suffocate them. The goal of the Trump administration is to pull out of a lousy deal with the single purpose in mind is to create a much better deal. And that's what this is all about. So we're imposing sanctions on the Iranians in a way that we had once before when we had the initial deal in place before the nuclear deal. Tough sanctions. Here's what I think is going to happen. Listen, these sanctions will really take its toll on on the Iranians. The, The EU is trying to keep their countries in this thing. Uh, they used intimidation and coercion, but at the end of the day, I mean, seriously, Iran's economy is $400 billion. U.S. economy is has just tapped $20 trillion. Are these countries really going to continue to with Iran and lose that trading with the United States, which the Trump administration is fully prepared to do? Look, Iran has a choice to make, and, and this is what the Trump administration is forcing on them. And the choice is not get all the goodies and keep your nuclear program. The choice is verifiable end to all nuclear program and related material and activity and a change in aggressive, belligerent behavior. I mean, folks, the Iranians have U.S. blood on their hands. They have the blood of our service members on their hands. They just to sow chaos and just be destructive, just be sadists. We're sending EFPs, explosively formed penetrators, across the border from Iran into Iraq and puncturing the holes of our armored vehicles and maiming and killing our soldiers in Iraq who are trying to stabilize that hellhole. All right, so the, I mean, the Iranian regime isn't just sponsoring terror in some vague sense. They have the blood of American service members on their hands. And enough is enough with these mullahs. Enough is enough with this tyranny in this country, okay, in, in, in the Iranian state. We need to finally demand that they change course 
or we're just going to bring their economy to its knees. We were doing that, by the way. Obama threw them a lifeline. Obama decided that it was better to work with the Iranians than to force the Iranians to stop doing the bad things they were doing. You know, I mean, with with Obama, it was always, you know, he's got he got the best hand in the world in the sense that he sits down at the poker table with the American military at his back. He sits down as the commander in chief of the most fearsome and awesome military machine on the planet, the biggest economy in the history of the world. And he's like, oh, what can I do to make you guys happy? No, that is not how he should have been negotiating. I also want to talk to you about what's going on in Iran. I mean, in in, uh, Yemen. So Yemen is the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world right now. I've talked to you a bit about it here on the show. It doesn't get much attention. I know Yemen is far off and not a place that uh, you necessarily think is is going to be high on the list of U.S. national security concerns. Uh, But it does have a very active Al-Qaeda franchise, one that has tried to target U.S. aviation in the past, one that has... I've uh, been very active in what we call external external terrorist plotting, which means coming after us and our allies anywhere and everywhere around the world. Um, and, and now Yemen is finally in the headlines because of a terrible tragedy. Uh, here's the reporting on it from The New York Times. An airstrike from the Saudi-led coalition struck a school bus in northern Yemen on Thursday and killed dozens of people, many of them children, according to local medical officials. Uh, The attack sent a flood of victims to overwhelmed hospitals struggling to cope in what the United Nations considers one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. The coalition said it had hit missile launchers and called the attack a legitimate military operation, but the attack and the justification for it were condemned and drew new attention to the tremendous human toll of the war in Yemen. Yeah, this war is grinding on. It's it's terrible. We are uh, backing the Saudis here, and the Saudis are engaged in this air campaign, and they're essentially the air force for the recognized national government of of Yemen, uh, but it's a complete mess. And and this is where I have to say, you know, with all the sanctimony you hear from journalists, I would want to say, especially from the, you know, the uh, MSNBC, CNN, Network News Corridor, I want to know, why are we not hearing more about Yemen? Why haven't they been leading news broadcasts with this story if they really do care about U.S. foreign policy, which based on what we saw with Helsinki and Trump, oh my gosh, if they really care about humanitarian goals and to stop suffering or at least limit suffering and to bring public attention to crises, you might have millions of people starving to death in 2018, folks. I mean, this is right now. This is real. And you, they, they still are just going to run all these stories about Stormy Daniels and Avenatti and all this other crap. So much sanctimony from these journos. And I guess they would say, if you really push them, well, Buck, you know, we have to cover stories that get ratings. Well, if you're covering stories because it's about ratings and not about your mission, not about telling us what what is really important in the world, you don't get to then hold yourselves up as the, the guardians of truth. You don't get to talk about the necessary role you play in informing the public based on what is necessary for the American. You're just an entertainment outlet. You're an entertainment outlet that's posing as something else. And and I think that the Yemen story is yet another time where we can stop and say to ourselves, you know what? They can be posers as much as they want, but we don't have to go along with the pretense that they're objective journos anymore because they'd much rather tell us about Stormy and Avenatti than about the massive humanitarian crisis that is continuing to unfold in Yemen.
Hour three coming up here. We've got to talk about China and the connections to Feinstein and the spy that was near her. Uh, We've got that and uh, much more, team. So stay with me. It's all about China infiltrating the office of a very powerful Democrat in Dianne Feinstein. It turns out her longtime staffer, Russell Lowe, who was a driver and also liaison to the Asian-American community in California, visited relatives overseas several years ago and became acquainted on the trip with someone who was connected to the People's Republic of China's Ministry of State Security. Five years ago, FBI agents showed up at Feinstein's office in D.C. and revealed her staffer was under investigation for possible possibly spying for China. So why haven't you heard a lot more about this? I know that was a little Fox News audio, right? That was uh, Ed Henry over at Fox talking about Dianne Feinstein's Chinese spy who was driving her around for 20 years or so. You're not hearing much about this. Well, we've got somebody who wants to dive into this with us and uh, talk a bit about what's really going on here. We have Ben Weingarten with us. He is the uh, host of the Big Ideas podcast with Ben Weingarten, also our senior contributor at the Federalist. He's got a piece up there right now. Senator Dianne Feinstein's ties to China go way deeper than an alleged office spy. Mr. Weingarten, good to have you, sir. Buck, it's always a pleasure, and thanks so much for having me. Ben and I were colleagues at The Blaze, by the way. He was one of the very smart people there, so I'm glad that he's still willing to be my friend later on because it makes me feel like I must have been one of the smart people there, too. Ben, let's get into it, my friend. Uh, what What's going on here with Feinstein? Yeah, so this story about the alleged Chinese spy, Russell Lowe, really caught my eye because we talk all the time, the narrative is all about Russian meddling, and there's no doubt that Russian intelligence is devious and they do all sorts of things to try to subvert us, try to influence people, etc. But China's security apparatus and their intelligence apparatus also poses a massive threat. One of the things that's not really talked about during the Obama years is the fact that there was a hack of the Office of Personnel Management. The U.S. government documentation on over 20 million federal employees and applicants for federal jobs. And basically what China did was they stole all of the most sensitive information that people put in their applications so that the government can actually vet their backgrounds and see if they could potentially be compromised by a foreign power. This is something that you know well based upon your experience in intelligence. China also destroyed America's uh, spying network essentially on their soil during the 2010s. So we're at a great disadvantage intelligence-wise with China. And here you have the attempt, and it seems like an actual Chinese spy in Dianne Feinstein's employee, employee as of five years ago. She had worked with him for 20 years. Most recently, it, it appears he was listed as an office director. So it's not just, a, not just some driver. But oh, by the way, even if it was just a driver, he could do a hell of a lot of damage because Dianne Feinstein was the chairman of the Senate Select Intelligence Committee, which means she had access and she was dealing daily for several years with the most sensitive, classified, top-secret kind of information, which poses a massive threat to us. So when I heard this story, what I wanted to do was look at what further ties does Feinstein have to China, and what I found was just staggering. Now, there, there's, some, there's some stuff here that I think also people need to, need to hear for, for background. I mean, you start off your piece on the Federals here with... Quote, I sometimes say that in my last life, maybe I was Chinese. End quote. That's from Senator Dianne Feinstein. She's got some deep ties and advocacy when it comes to communist China. Yeah, absolutely unbelievable. So when I started digging into Feinstein's Chinese background to see if this was just one isolated attempt, 
what I found were three major things. One, Diane Feinstein and her husband have been tied very closely to the most senior ranks of the Chinese Communist Party for the last 40 years, basically since we opened diplomatic relations with China. Number two, Feinstein, in terms of her political positions, has taken a very pro-China policy in terms of expanding trade and allowing them to enter all of the different commercial bodies that have allowed China and enabled China to become a dominant economic power. At the same time, she's taken a very dovish position when it comes to military relations to China, and she's apologized in the most sickening of ways for China's human rights violations, trying to whitewash things like Tiananmen Square, for example, just horrific. But then the last piece to all of this, which really ties it together, is the fact that Feinstein's husband, who is a very, very successful investor, perhaps not coincidentally, has seen his investments in China swell, and that swelling, that appreciation and the profits associated with those investments have occurred alongside his wife taking a very pro-Chinese position. And oh, by the way, he's had access to the very senior members of the Chinese Communist Party that she's had because he's taken many trips with her over the years to meet with dignitaries on the Chinese side. So you have the potentially a spy, you have very pro-Chinese policy, and then you have a massive business conflict of interest. So this could potentially be a real collusion story, and I don't want to politicize it in that way, but it's a broader problem than any one administration or any one senator. Ben, you write in this piece, very good piece in The Federalist that I would recommend to anybody who's got the time to uh, read up on this. For the last 40 years, no politician in America has arguably maintained a deeper, more longstanding and friendlier relationship with China at the highest levels of its ruling Communist Party than Feinstein. It dates back to the opening of U.S.-Chinese diplomatic relations in 1979. Ben, I feel like nobody knows this. I mean, you know, you're writing this, and I'm glad you're getting the word out here, but this is not a part of the coverage. It's like, oh, some Chinese guy that was kind of near Feinstein, you know, NBD. That's really what the media vibe is on this. It is really amazing, and and that relationship started when... San Francisco entered into what's called a sister city relationship with Shanghai. So basically they opened up diplomatic relations, started to open up some commercial relations, and Feinstein was the one who spearheaded that because she was the mayor of San Francisco in the late 70s or or rather early 80s. The mayor of Shanghai at that time, so her counterpart, is uh, an official, his his name is Zhang Zemin. He ended up rising from mayor of Shanghai to ultimately premier, general secretary of the Communist Party, so essentially the equivalent of Xi Jinping. He held three of the top leadership positions you could have in the Communist Party. So he was, for all intents and purposes, the leader of China subsequently in his career, and Dianne Feinstein maintained very close relationships to him throughout that rise. She served as an intermediary between the Bill Clinton White House and the Chinese when Jiang Zemin was leading as the premier of China. So she has been tied to the most senior levels for a long time, and and what's staggering when you start to look at the history is that she talks seemingly in glowing terms about how she was invited to China, she and her husband, and was one of the first people to dine in the room that Mao Zedong died in and lived in, as if that's some great accomplishment. Oh, by the way, these are an enemy power, essentially. Mao Zedong was a mass murderer. So what, you know, the fact that she didn't potentially see that they were sort of buttering her up and working her over these years, apparently, is kind of an amazing thing. And there's also writing about how, 
you know, she invited Jiang Zemin when he was mayor to San Francisco, had him over for Thanksgiving, apparently was dancing with him. And, and this is really reminiscent of something uh, that the, the Soviet Union did. The Soviet Union allegedly uh, had Ted Kennedy to a Soviet wedding that was staged and took pictures of him dancing and celebrating with uh, Soviet counterparts. It's a very similar thing, a parallel between the, the Russians and the Chinese. And it's all right out there. I mean, this is open source. I cite articles from the LA Times from 1994, 1996, 97, 2000. The list goes on and on in terms of these connections. And it's just a very troubling, more than troubling, disturbing thing when you see a US senator so close to people in the highest ranks of an adversarial Chinese Communist Party. And you know, one part of this, uh, Ben, that I, I want to highlight for folks is that if you are a U.S. senator, and you're a U.S. senator who sits on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, which means that you have oversight of the intelligence community, so you essentially have access to anything that you want in the intel community. I mean, you know, you cannot, I know this from when I was in the CIA, you can't lie to a senator if they ask you, you can say we can't talk about this here, but if you're behind closed doors, they ask you, you got to tell them, right? I mean, if, if you're in a, in a classified setting and... There is no background investigation of senators. People, I don't think people know this. The, the president and senators get clearance by virtue of the votes given them by the American people. There is no background check on a senator. There is no uh, inherent counterintelligence check on a sitting U.S. senator. They are considered to have clearance by virtue of the office. So think about that for a moment. It's, it's not just like she's a senior government official who's had a five-year reoccurring background investigation and access to classified. She's somebody who nobody was allowed to look into all this time. And given her very powerful position on the Democratic Party, I, I, I'm willing to bet, Ben, that you know when you see the way that they used any opportunity with Carter Page to get a counterintelligence investigation going against uh, Trump associates, including Trump himself, really, by virtue of his connections— and then what's going on here with Dianne Feinstein? I'm sorry, this stinks. Look, I mean, if you read the order calling for the convening of the special counsel and you read the language and it talks about looking for any links and or ties, uh, coordination between, in that case, the, the Trump team and the Russians. Well, if you applied that same language to all the links, ties, coordination between Dianne Feinstein, her staffers, and the Chinese government, that, in, that special counsel would run for 10 years. I mean, it would be never-ending because you're talking about someone who's had relationships with these senior dignitaries on the Chinese side for 40 years. I mean, it, it's amazing how deep it runs, and there's even a Clinton tie-in to this, Bill Clinton tie-in, which is, as your listeners surely know, in 1996 there was, there was an investigation into illegal Chinese financing of Democratic campaigns in an attempt to influence the campaigns. This has been written up, I think, in the Wall Street Journal pretty recently as uh, kind of Bill Clinton's Russia. So there was illegal financing from Chinese individuals linked to uh, senior members of the Communist Party in an attempt to influence Bill Clinton and the DNC more broadly. And what do you know, one of those people who was convicted, one of the biggest bundlers, raised $3 million for the DNC and they gave half of it back because they weren't comfortable with the source that it ultimately came from. And this individual was convicted uh, on raising these funds for felony campaign finance violations. He was actually one of the people who attended a fundraiser at the House in 1996 of none other than Dianne Feinstein. It was Feinstein, Bill Clinton, and one of the people associated with that 
And the FBI had warned Dianne Feinstein that the Chinese might try to make campaign contributions to influence her. This is back in 1997, 1996. She was told this by the FBI. So there is a long story here, a lot of details that I lay out and try to do so in a systematic fashion in this article. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg because this is just reporting on open source information that's out there that anyone would want to investigate if there was a Chinese spy potentially close to someone as senior as Dianne Feinstein or anyone in the federal government for that matter. Ben, really first class deep dive that you've pulled together here with this piece. Everyone should check it out. We'll share it also on Facebook. Uh, Thefederalist.com is where you go for it. Senator Dianne Feinstein's ties to China go way deeper than an alleged office spy. Uh, Ben, really appreciate you joining us. Ben Weingarten, everybody. Buck, thank you so much. All right, team, we got a lot more coming, uh, including a discussion of Space Force. Oh, yes, the Space Force. I'm telling you, my that's right, dude. My theme song for Space Force is going to become the official, like there will be the you know, Star-Spangled Banner, and then there will be Buck's version of Space Force. That's how, that's how powerful my Space Force theme will be. Stay with me. I got long days, folks. I know you do, too. If you want a little bit of a boost, that little bit of extra punch to get you through whatever your next task, mission, or challenge may be, Strike Force Energy is for you. Look, it's delicious, and it's so easy. It comes in these little packets, and you mix it in with whatever you want. I like to use it in water, but you could put it in some lemonade, put it in, uh, if you want a little bit of seltzer water. It's delicious in any of them. Even throw it in a beer if you want. Oh, it's summertime. Kick back, relax, get a little bit of a boost going. Strike Force Energy also delivers packets of strike force to military members around the globe in fact they will match for every packet you buy they will send one to a member of active duty military at home and abroad so please team go check them out strikeforceenergy.com and our discount code buck at checkout again that's strikeforceenergy.com discount code buck when you get to the checkout and make sure that uh you know that everything that you're buying is going to be mirror image and sent to troops around the globe Man, do you want to spend a lot of my tax money on these proposals that you and Bernie have? Medicare for all, college tuition, maybe even housing. How do you pay? How do you sell it? So, first of all, the thing that we need to realize is people talk about the sticker shock of Medicare for all. They do not talk about the sticker shock of our of the cost of our existing system. Medicare for all is actually much more is is actually much cheaper than the current system that we pay right now. And let's not forget that the reason that the Supreme Court upheld the Affordable Care Act is because they ruled that each of these monthly payments that everyday Americans make is a tax. And so, while it may not seem like we pay that tax on April. 15th, we pay it every single month, or we do pay it tax season if we don't buy, uh, you know, these plans off of the exchange. So we're paying for this system. We Americans have the sticker shock of health care as it is. And what we're also not talking about is why aren't we incorporating the cost of all the funeral expenses of those who die because they can't afford access to health care. That is part of the cost of our system. Yeah, like, why are you not talking about, like, the cost of funerals? Because, like, those flower bouquets are, like, super expensive. And, oh, my gosh. So I was drinking a non-fat soy latte watching Chris Hayes on MSNBC. And I was just like, that funeral expense that my friend's friend's great-grandmother had was, like, so expensive. And it's, like, an expense that we should think about with healthcare Because, like... You know, like the, the the big like the thing where you put the person when they're dead is like really expensive, folks. 
folks. Uh, you know, I'm actually starting to feel I'm actually starting to feel a little bad for her. I mean, that, that the Democrats have put forward this Ocasio-Cortez uh, lady as the hope of their party. This is this is what they've got for us going forward here. This is who they offer up to to change one fifth of the U.S. economy. Everything that she said essentially makes no sense. Her whole thing about Obamacare and the tax, yeah, you pay that if you're in the individual market and you choose not to buy insurance. And oh, by the way, Republicans have wiped this away, right? So when she says you're paying it every month, it's not clear what she's talking about. And everybody who's done any study of not just Medicare or healthcare, but basic market forces will tell you that when people have access to whatever they want of something, they will overuse it and they will over tax the system, in this case, the healthcare system, by just saying, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll use more of this. I'll go see the specialist right away. I'll have this, you know, I'll, I'll choose to have this uh, this surgery sooner or I'll, you know, all these different things that come up. People go to look, I, I told you that story when I was in the ER trying to get my eye fixed and people were in there getting eyeglasses in the ER. What are you what are you doing in here? Oh, okay. It's a first line of care. I see what's going on. So I, I was, I, I'm amazed that she goes on air and says the things that she says, but maybe I shouldn't be. By the way, she was also asked about whether Pelosi is the, uh, is the true leader of the Democratic Party. He, here, is, here is what she said, 17. If you are to be successful in the general, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but if you win mm-hmm. and you go to Congress, there will be a leader of your caucus. Her name is Nancy Mm. Pelosi. Mm. Do you recognize her as the Mm -hmm. leader for the House Democrats? Of course. Well, I think absolutely right now, you know, she... Go ahead, please. She is is the leader of... of, No, no, she... I mean, um, um, Speaker, or rather, Leader Pelosi, Mm -hmm. hopefully... Um, you know, we'll see. She's uh, she's the, the current leader of the party. And I think that the party absolutely does have its leadership in the House. We have our leadership in in the Senate as well. <laughs> Would you back Pelosi for Wait, she's like the leader in and are in the House? Well, I think, again, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. As you mentioned, I got to win my race first, but we got to take a look at what's going on. Yeah, like she's like the leader of the leadership and the leadering of like the leaderishness of the House and like. Like, leadering is, like, really hard for her. And so, like, yeah. Like, I think that she's going to, like, leaderize things, like, really well. Whew. Folks. Not good. Not good from the Democrats. Although, I think producer Mike secretly has a soft spot for Ocasio-Cortez. No? No? Thumbs down? Please, dude. I I know that was a joke. I feel like you get her phone number. Yeah, yeah. I feel like producer Mike would get her phone number in a bar and not think twice about it. I'm just putting that out there. I don't know. Producer Mike's got game, ladies. All right, we are, uh, we, we've got a whole lot more to talk about, including Space Force, Space Force, party time, excellent Space Force. Woo-woo-woo. Coming up. The essence of the American character is to explore new horizons and to tame new frontiers. But our destiny beyond the Earth is not only a matter of national identity, but a matter of national security, so important for our military. And today, we renew the president's call on the Congress of the United States to invest an additional $8 billion in our space security systems over the next five years. The men and women of this department have also taken historic steps to secure American leadership in space. 
At the direction of Secretary Mattis, the Department of Defense is fielding a new generation of jam-resistant GPS and communication satellites, and new missile warning satellites that are smaller, tougher, and more maneuverable than ever before. We're only a beginning of meeting the rising security threats our nation faces in space today and in the future. As President Trump has said in his words, it is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. And so we will. Space Force, yeah, Space Force. Man, this is going to be amazing. Just when you thought the Trump presidency couldn't be any more awesome, he's coming to you with Space Force, also known as the United States Space Command. The Pentagon unveiled this this report, and originally they said that the Space Force should be under the purview of the Air Force, but... People say that the Air Force doesn't pay enough attention to outer space because there's no golf courses in outer space. Oh, sorry, Air Force. Just kidding. Just kidding. I know you're only allowed to make jokes if you're actually in the service. Uh, but I, I do hear I, I, even when I was in the I will tell you this. Even intelligence analysts make jokes about the Air Force. Sometimes we don't make jokes about Navy, Army or, or Marines, but occasionally we make Air Force base jokes because the base are like, wow. You guys have even nicer bases than us Intel nerds do. And we, we look for where to put the cappuccino machine right away. Ah, but I digress. So, look, the space situation is, is important. And, and I, know, I know I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek about the whole thing. But this is, not, uh, this is not something that we can turn a blind eye to. This isn't uh, something that isn't going to become a much bigger issue going forward. We've, we've already got a lot of communications uh, technology in space. Uh, we're using satellites for all kinds of comp technology. We've been using it for uh, for surveillance purposes. We have the you know National Geospatial Intelligence uh, Center, um, and you know there's there's some very clear or the National did I say National Geospatial National Ground Intelligence Center? That's part of the. Uh, Army Intelligence Security Command. Am I am I wrong about the geo? Whoops! National Ground Intelligence Center. All right, whatever. Injik. Um, maybe I got my. I know I got my stuff wrong. Um, anyway, it's going to get more. It's going to become a bigger issue. It's going to become something that we're going to have to be uh, looking at going forward. And I, I like that Trump is on it. Uh, I like that Trump is, you know, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Yeah. All right. I thought I was sorry. I stopped. I was like, my gosh, Buck, have you been out of the intel community that long? You can't even can't even remember the names of these different places. The truth is right now, if you offered me, if you offered me a lot of money to come up with all 17 intel agencies off the top of my head, I could do it. But I can't guarantee you I could do it. I could probably do it. But I'm not sure I could guarantee I could do it. Then there's some stuff like INR at state intelligence and research. I'm like, come on, you're not an intel agency. Get out of here. Subject matter experts at the State Department doesn't count. Anyway, uh, so this is what this is what we got going forward. We've got the um, uh, we've got the space force, space force. I gotta say, is something that I'm I'm excited about. We don't really know where it's going. We just know that they're going to be using this for. Uh, a whole bunch of very important plans going forward. And, and eventually, there will be 
war fighting that takes place in space. I, I think that much is, is clear. And I believe an ICBM, right, goes up into the upper atmosphere and satellites can, you know, pew, pew, and shoot the ICBM. I, I don't know. I'm not a... Once you start getting out of the realm of counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, I just read Tom Clancy novels like everybody else. I don't really have a particular expertise. I think that's come across the way I'm talking this. I'm just like, Space Force! I just want to be your force in space! I could do this theme song, right, Producer Mike? I could do the theme song myself. I'm, like a one, I'm a one-man band here, not just in terms of the radio show, but in terms of everything. Space Force! So, yeah, man. That's what I've, that's what I've got going on. Um, looking forward to hearing more about the Space Force. Looking forward to uh, understanding more of what the plan is for uh, for Trump and all the rest of them. Space Force all the way. That's what Trump put that on Twitter. All right. So I'm not just I'm not the only one who's excited about this. It's going to be fantastic. Okay. Yeah. You know it has to go through Congress. Womp, womp. I get it. Um, but you got Pentagon officials saying that they will make this thing happen. So now this will also lead us to have a bunch of big nerd fights over what the best of the uh, of the space epic series, whether it's Battlestar Galactica, um, the various Star Trek iterations, the various Star Wars movies, which is the greatest of all time. I've had friends tell me Battlestar Galactica is the greatest show ever, so... I, I, I got to watch it. I got to embrace my inner nerd and check out Battlestar Galactica because Space Force. That's right. It's roll call time, everybody. Very exciting to get a chance to chat with you about your thoughts, your things, all of the above. And uh, don't forget to check out last week's Freedom Hut podcast. It was with Raheem Kassam. We had a great discussion about lots and lots of stuff. Um, and yeah. Uh, Facebook.com slash Buck Saxon if you want to be a part of Roll Call. First up, we have Roberto, who writes, Shields High Buckman, which is technically my name. I agree with the guy that requested getting the Rising program as a podcast. Not everybody has time to stare at that secure, smug-looking face. That secure, smug-looking face. Uh, Roberto, we are working on it. So thank you very much for that. Uh, we are on it. Uh, next up here is Jason. Uh, Ghostbusters was clear the quote. Granted, I've seen that movie a hundred times. Ah, Phyllis already got it. Indeed, Phyllis beat you to the punch, Jason. But thank you for writing in nonetheless. Adam writes, bad producer Mike. August 8th is missing an iHeart. Producer Mike, you're getting called out. Well, let me now say before producer Mike throws something at me, which would take a lot of elbow grease because he's in New York and I'm in D.C., uh, it was it's just a tech glitch it has nothing to do with Mike or the team here. The iHeart platform for some reason didn't upload our podcast. It should be up now if it's from yesterday. Uh, if it is not, let us know. And uh, also it's why you always can have the backup of Stitcher or SoundCloud. JJ writes, great show. Can't call in live, so I have to listen to the podcast. But talking about the collusion, is there any way you can dive into how much money the Mueller probe has spent on this investigation? Well, JJ. The Mueller probe uh, spent in the millions, probably over $10 million at this point, although I don't know. I, I understand that it's frustrating for people because it's a waste of taxpayer dollars. But I also would note, in all, in all honesty, that complaining about the cost of the Mueller probe is probably in, or, or even just pointing out the cost of the Mueller probe is not effective as a means of combating 
its excesses. This is a politically driven uh, situation, a politically driven uh, investigation, and we should attack it on the merits more than on the cost, I think. Uh, so, uh, But a fair question you ask, I just don't know how effective it is. In, if it's just a curiosity question, then sure. Uh, if it's a, hey, this costs a lot, we're going to have a trillion dollar deficit next year, folks. I don't think $6 million is going to matter all that much, or $10 million is going to matter all that much to it. Aaron writes, oh my God, Buck, so easy. Now stay close. Stay close. That's right. It is Ghostbusters. I know exactly what to do. Now stay close. Stay close. I know. Do exactly as I say. Get ready. Ready? Get her! (laughs) (laughs) Never gets old. Oh, Ghostbusters, a truly, a truly timeless classic of American cinema. Okay, uh, now, who do we have here? Wayne. Wayne's also letting us know the, the uh, August 8th show did not post to iHeartRadio. Bummer, Wayne, I'm sorry about that. I don't know what's going on with iHeart. I don't know why it does not upload our podcast, and we will fix it. But always remember, you can go on iTunes, or you can go on... Um, Stitcher.com, and the show posts there as well. Bruce writes, Your show has rapidly uh, become among my favorites. When you start to tell liberals that call in to shut the hell up, then you will have caught up to my favorite. Okay, Bruce. A little bit different style for me, but thank you very much for uh, writing in nonetheless. I do appreciate it. Uh, Gentry. Whoa, Gentry. Oh, here we go. Um, Buck, enjoying the new show. Not so sure about your co-host, but she seems pleasant enough. I thought I would just ask a quick question. I don't think I've heard you addressed yet. Why are the Democrats losing their minds about the Trump Tower meeting when the entire Russian collusion delusion hinges upon information obtained from a foreign national? If getting info from a foreign national is this huge problem, do they not realize what the dossier is? Or do they think that we're just all so stupid that we forgot they paid a Brit to get supposed Russian intel on the president. Shields high, Gentry. Uh, uh, Gentry, you're, you're correct. Or is it Gentry? Gentry. Uh, you are correct, sir. And that's why they were going to have to back off this narrative. You see, they ran with it until we came up with the, the truth, uh, which was the only effective counter-narrative that was needed here. You can't think that getting information from a foreign source is okay for one candidate, but not okay for the other. It does not work that way um and uh mr mr gentry gentry thank you so much william is next here uh your navy seal guy brandon is absolutely correct in combat i always felt the fear afterwards i guess the adrenaline took over during the action i did have good friends that froze in fear during a firefight i think playing football martial arts wrestling and swimming in the ocean as a kid helped me and daddy taught me to always throw the first punch I'm afraid of heights, yet I'm airborne. I'm afraid of spiders and all flying, stinging insects and snakes. But I crawl under my house to fix things. Conquering fear. You conquered fear. You have a show. My biggest fear is public speaking, and and now I do it every day. Fear is the greatest enemy. Facing fear is what makes you an adult. It makes you a great dad or mom. It makes you a great business person. Well, William, that's a a really uh, inspired and, and powerful note from you. So thank you so much for sending that in to us here in the hut and and yeah i look i've uh, told you many times before 
that I am now a, a nationally syndicated radio host who has uh, who has been at different times given the biggest radio platforms in the country for three hours at a time. Uh, Rush and Hannity and Sean. I'm sorry, and Glenn. <laughs> Sean and Hannity are the same person. Uh, but I'm somebody who had a speech impediment growing up. So you know, overcoming your fears is a greatly empowering thing. Uh, overcoming fear is something that will uh, put you in good stead for, well, w- once you start doing it, I think you want to do it more. And uh, William, thank you for your service, and thank you very much for writing in. Monica writes, hey, Buck, great show. Gun violence in Chicago. The left says the violence there is due to adjacent cities and counties not having enough gun laws. Of course, it is because of not enough control. Shields high. Yes, Monica, I know. So, you know, in a city where guns are banned, they say it's because of lax gun laws in surrounding counties. But in places like in entire states like Vermont, for example, that have very lax gun laws, there's almost no crime. Why is that? Why is Vermont such an outlier? It's not just Vermont. There are some other states you could point to as well. But if it really is about the guns and gun control, why are there states that have, relatively speaking, lax gun restrictions and very, very few acts of violence? The left does not have answers for this, my friends. They don't even pretend to have answers for it. Kyle, next up here. Hey, Buck, Shields High. I don't recall you hitting on this specific angle, but do you suppose that the current push by the left for free college is more of an effort of massive indoctrination than just their usual half-baked, wouldn't it be nice, if impractical policy? Think about it. If you were offered free college, would you ever turn that down in lieu of a trade school or on-the-job training? It seems to me they have a specific strategy in brainwashing Countless more future collegiates. Is there any merit in this observation? Thanks from Kyle near Seattle. Now, Kyle, I think you're on to something. Uh, I, I think that you're actually making a very astute point here. Um, I, I don't think it's a primary reason. I do think that the, just the, the free stuff crowd really does just want free stuff. But I, I also believe that if you were to um, ask them, would they prefer to have a lot of people in four-year, very expensive undergraduate programs funded by the state? The answer is, of course, yes, because college campuses are, in fact, largely indoctrination centers for left-wing ideology in this country, the same way that public schools have been for a long time, although not as much because of the local control uh, of some public schools, but the Department of Education has been pushing uh, leftist lines for a very, very long time. Uh, So I think you're making a very good point. And with that, my friends, I'm going to close up the Freedom Hut for uh, this episode. Please do share it with a friend. The more you guys can do to spread this show by word of mouth, the more successful and the more we'll continue to uh, to grow. So uh, the, the biggest compliment you can give is to say, hey, you should check out this podcast by this guy, Buck Sexton. I think you'd really enjoy it. Uh, so those of you who have a chance to do that, I do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Tomorrow we're going to have a Freestyle Friday. Going to be a fantastic show. And... Uh, I'm looking forward to it already, team. So until then, Shields High. When you're hiring somebody for your business or leasing out a property that you own, you got to make sure that the people that are coming into your world have clean criminal background history, have a clean employment history, and also are going to bring all the skills and all the things to you that they say that they will, right? You need somebody that can check up on all that, do the background investigation and vetting work, 
Global Verification Network is your answer. Global Verification is the only dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company. It is headquartered in Chicago, and their risk mitigation experts will work with companies of any size, folks. Whether you're a startup all the way up to a Fortune 100 company, give them a call, 877-695-1179, 877-695-1179, or go to mygvn.com, that's mygvn.com, Global Verification Network, leave no stone unturned. 